The great prayer is that we will keep Christ not only at the center of Christmas, but I like what Joanna said in her post, in her city post, in quoting John Piper, that Christ is first, second, and again and again. Christ is the, the theme all the way through as we move through this season. So I want to start this morning by saying that it would be no surprise at all if we were to go around the room this morning and ask each of us, say each of us were to get up here and sort of share a little bit of their testimony as things stand today, how, how often we would be expressing our frustrations with the Christian life. The Christian life is very difficult. Uh, if anyone says the Christian life is not difficult, they are a liar. Uh, it is, and we are told very clearly in Scripture that it will be difficult. No one who desires to live a godly life or everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We know that we have an enemy whose schemes we pray against. We know that we have flesh which is constantly trying to go back to that old person that we were before Jesus changed us. And so we have these frustrations as we live out the Christian life. And I think if we were to go around the room this morning, we would have some who would say, Look, I'm just frustrated with my Christian life in general. And I have been for a long time. And maybe that's you. You just feel like there, there's, there's a kind of futility, a kind of meaninglessness, a lack of direction, a lack of intentionality. Just sort of a, a general state of frustration in your Christian life. But maybe you're not in that category. You wouldn't say that that's where you stand now or you feel that way overall. But maybe you can point back to a season in your life or maybe there's a season in your life right now that, you, that you're experiencing where there is much frustration about directionless, directionlessness in your Christian life. Or maybe it's just an individual day. I mean, how many of us have laid down at night after a busy day and we've just felt defeated? Maybe we're thinking about all the things that we didn't do, all of the things we did wrong, all of the parenting mistakes we made, all of the marital mistakes we made, or just in general, all of our failures and weaknesses sort of coming in on us at the end of a day and we feel very much frustrated and defeated about our Christian life on that particular day. Well, the thing is, we know that these frustrations will always be present. There will never be a time in your Christian life and my Christian life when we've kind of overcome all frustrations and our spiritual life is just sort of coasting along perfectly. That will never happen in this life. We are waiting for the appearing of our glorious Savior, our glorious God and Savior as we encountered in chapter 2. We're waiting for the coming of Jesus. He will make all things new which has already happened or begun to happen in us as we find this new life, this regenerated, renewed life in us. That will come to full fruition at the consummation of all things when Christ returns. So we know these frustrations will always be present because of sin, because of Satan, and also just circumstances. I mean, sometimes we run into bad circumstances which remind us of the fact that we live in a broken world. We're broken. Our world is broken. The people we love, the people we interact with are broken. And even the societal structures themselves, governed by people, sinful people, human beings, are broken. And so all of these things contribute, I think, to our frustrations. But, in the midst of all of this, we are told in Scripture 
that we can have and are called to a meaningful, rich, fruitful Christian life. So all of those frustrations present, we are still nonetheless in the midst of all those frustrations, to, we're called to have a fruitful, meaningful, full, and rich Christian life. So how do we live meaningful Christian lives? Often times we are sitting around maybe pondering the how-to question. And I think the answer, at least partially, that we get is here in Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 8. So go ahead and turn there, if you will. Titus 3, and we're going to go from verses 8 to 11. And the title for the sermon this morning is A Gospel Productivity. A Gospel Productivity. Having a fruitful, productive, profitable, useful, rich, full Christian life. That's what we want and that's what we can have by God's grace. So let's read Titus 3. 8 to 11. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're here again to worship you as a local church. We're grateful that you've brought us here today together. We're grateful that you have given us brothers and sisters, each of us, brothers and sisters in Christ who can encourage us and hold us accountable as we live out the Christian life. God, we're grateful that we so easily and readily can open up a Bible and read your revelation, read of the gospel, read of the pure and wise life that you have called us to in the gospel. We're thankful that we can open up your word and see the Lord Jesus Christ exalted, that we can see his goodness, his compassion, his kindness towards sinners, his condescension from the glories of heaven to take on flesh and to die a sinner's death on a Roman cross, naked, despised, mocked, spit upon, beaten, crucified for us. Father, we're thankful this morning that above all of the stressors and frustrations of this feeble life, there is a cross that stands higher. We're thankful that through Jesus, through his cross work, all hope is found. All life is found. 
And God, we're grateful for the work that you have done in each of us who are here. And we pray, God, that if there are those who are among us this morning who have never tasted your goodness in this way, they have never tasted your mercy through Jesus Christ, that you would pour out your spirit upon them today, God, through the hearing of your word. Would you make us all attentive that your word would bear its fruit, that it always does when it is heard and understood and and processed, that your spirit takes that word and brings about fruit in our lives. And we pray that that will happen today as we meet together. God, would our conversations today be edifying to one another? Would we speak life into each other's lives? Would we speak Christ to one another? Would we proclaim him and his crucifixion and resurrection God, we thank you for the privilege that we have to bring our children to a place where they can be taught your word. We're thankful for what's going on over there this morning as the children are being taught the truths of the gospel. They're being taught about a God who made them and who loves them and who sent his son to die for sinners. And through believing in him, we can be saved. God, would that message be clear here and would it be clear there, we ask. And for that matter, Father, we ask that that message would be clear everywhere today as people, as your people gather together in churches across this land and across the world. We pray that your name will be exalted, that sinners will be drawn to you today. We ask for great, a great movement of the Holy Spirit in this community, in this town, in this state, in this country, in this world We ask that your spirit will do mighty things among us at this time. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage, as we go through it, verses 8 to 11, gives us three pictures, I think, as we go through. We get the worthwhile, the wasted, and the warped. The worthwhile, the wasted, and the warped. So let's look first at the worthwhile Or the productive, the fruitful, the profitable. Look at verse 8. The worthwhile. First picture. The saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things. This is Paul speaking to Titus. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. One of the benefits of preaching through a book or a large section of scripture, which is what we do here at Four Corners, sometimes we'll preach through an entire book. We went through, uh, I believe, before John, which started a number of years ago, I think three years ago or so. Uh, We were in John for a very long time. Before that, I think it was Hebrews. It was Hebrews. Then before that, I won't won't get into it. I think Malachi, Galatians, and Mark, I think were some of the books. Maybe that covers it. Uh, But Hebrews, and then there was John. And then we did a series on Ephesians 5, to 6, 4, which deals with the family. And the reason we chose that passage is because it's kind of the major passage in all of Scripture about the family. But we went verse by verse through that passage and very much in light of the context. So we either do that where we take a chunk of Scripture like that and we teach through it expositionally or we go through books. And one of the benefits of studying the Bible this way is that as we work through this, it allows us to see the logic of the author. 
Because you see the logic of the author kind of unfolding. You have to treat every, every paragraph. Every paragraph hangs together with the other paragraphs. And those paragraphs go together. It's, it's a, an extended discourse. And so you have to understand what is going on. The line of reasoning. So you can't just come to the text and throw whatever at it you want to. Or turn it into a message on this or that. You actually have to follow the train of thought of the author. And today's passage in particular is very closely intertwined with the two previous passages that we've looked at. So uh, two weeks ago we looked at verses 1 and 2 and then last week we looked at verses 3 through 7. And when we start verse 8 we come into this, these, these first few words at the beginning of verse 8 where it says the saying is trustworthy. And this points us backwards in the passage to what we studied last week. As we, as we think about these verses, Titus 3, 3 to 7, we looked at last week. This very opening phrase, the saying is trustworthy, is pointing back to this passage that we covered. And the saying is probably verses 4 to 11. And so what we have there is a, a particular saying of Paul. It maybe is borrowed from, a, from an ancient Christian hymn, a hymn that is circulating around at that time, or a, hymn, a, a, a phrase or a saying or, or a hymn that Paul himself has produced or that has been produced in the churches that Paul has ministered to. Or just a saying that Paul wants to delineate. This is a particular saying that you need to remember. This is, this is a, a particular set of words that, that convey a truth that hangs together. It's very important. And so let's look at that. Let's go back and read those verses again. Starting in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And here's where a lot of commentators think that the saying begins, although there's much debate. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And then we get to verse 8, the saying is trustworthy. And so it's probably the case that Paul is at this point Pointing us back to verses 4 to 7. Possibly a, a, a section within those verses, but probably most commentators think it's verses 4 to 7. And one commentator, Andreas Kustenberger, calls this saying a summary of Pauline soteriology in highly condensed form and Trinitarian in import. That centers on God's salvation of believers through Christ and his regenerating work through the Holy Spirit. And that's what we looked at last week. And so you think about Paul and all of his lofty language and all of his worshipful, as he breaks out in these doxologies, in this worship, in the middle of a sentence, these long sentences we talked about. 4 to 11, by the way, is one sentence. We think about, wouldn't it be great to have kind of Paul's theology of salvation in a nutshell? And, of course, that's what we have in Titus. And it's here in Titus in this little book that probably most of us, I've talked to a few people over the last few months who have said, I, didn't even, I have never even read Titus. 
Or I didn't even know that Titus was really in the Bible. Or I paid any attention to the details of Titus. Yet, in this little book, three chapters, you get this little nutshell version of Paul's theology of salvation. The, the apostle of grace. The apostle of the glory of God in Christ. The apostle who is bringing the gospel to the nations gives us here in these verses a little version of everything that he has to say. And we are told that this statement about God's gracious salvation is trustworthy. He says at the beginning of verse 8, the saying is trustworthy. And that means that this is true beyond doubt. You can build your life on it. You can bank everything on it. And the truth is that many of us live our lives according to things that aren't true or reliable at all. We bank on things that we shouldn't bank on. We build our lives uh, on things that, that are really worthless. Really, as, as Jesus says in Matthew 7, like sinking sand. And Paul wants to reiterate the fact that this message about God as merciful Savior who saves sinners by His grace, not by their works, who transforms them from the inside out, regenerating and renewing their hearts through the cross work of Jesus Christ, that that is is trustworthy. You can build everything on this gospel. This is worth all of our time, all of our money, all of our breaths that God blesses us with in this life. Everything should be built on this. It's reliable. It's faithful. It's trustworthy. It is the truth. Every other truth emanates out from this singular, paramount truth. But why did Paul include this passage, verses 4 to 7, at this particular point? What's the, what's the reasoning behind his inclusion of these verses? And the answer is this. This passage, along with verse 3, was given as the reason for the instructions given in verses 1 and 2. So at this point, you may be checking out a little bit. But this is important, especially when you're reading through Paul. Because you have to understand the logical cohesion of all of these ideas. Verses 1 to 2, he says, do this. Or he's telling Titus, tell them. In Crete, those Christians, do this. Treat people in this way. And then we get to verses 3 through 7. And he says, this is the reason why we do this. And then we enter into our passage for today in verse Eight. We have ethical teaching backed up by gospel truth. And one of the things that we need to constantly emphasize is that ethics can be detached from the gospel. And in fact, that's always the case for unbelievers. Unbelievers have a series of things that they think one ought to do and things that one ought not to do. Good things, bad things, right, wrong. Many in our culture would say there really is no right and wrong. There really is no true and false. But most people, functionally speaking, especially in how they raise their kids. I was listening to something recently about how people become a little more conservative in this way once they have children. Because that just doesn't work. That idea of there being no bad, no good, no true, false, no right, wrong, doesn't work when you have little kids whom you have to teach and train and discipline, even in the small, mundane things of life. But the truth is that all ethical teaching that does not emanate from the gospel is empty. 
It's void of power and ultimately void of real, substantive, solid truth. And so Paul wants to go through in all of his letters and he wants to say, do this, do that. And by the way, imperatives are necessary. We are told, do this, obey. Commands are given all throughout Scripture. But one of the things that you'll see in the New Testament is that these commands, these calls to obedience, are always backed up by these rich theological truths centered on God our Savior through Jesus Christ. Ethical teaching backed up by gospel truth. And if we pull together... So stay with me. If we pull together these verses, verses 1 to 7, we get this. If we're going to sort of summarize it, we should treat non-Christians in our society with kindness and respect because we were once just like them. And that's where we pick up at our passage over here. But God saved us by his mercy, apart from any good in us, and made us capable of acting just as he has in love for mankind. That is a summary of chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. That's the context for our verses today. And so back to verse 8. Hopefully that situates what we're looking at today. Back to verse 8. It is these things that we find in verses 1 to 7 as the passage goes on. The saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things. Paul says, I want you to insist on what I've just told you from verses 1 to 7. Verse 8, he says, I want you, Titus, to insist on these things. Taken as a whole, he is to insist on all of this confidently asserting all of these things to the believers in Crete. And guess what happens? When he does that, there's something that is produced. It's called good works. Good works come out of, are produced by an insistence on everything that we find from verses 1 all the way through to, verses, to verse 7. And those good works then result in things that are excellent and profitable for people. It's what Brian Chapel calls the doctrines and duties of grace. I love that. The doctrines and duties of grace. That when you look at chapter 3 verses 1 to 7, you get there both duty and doctrine. The duty is, is, is undergirded by the doctrine. And all of that that we find in those verses produces good works which then produces that which is excellent and profitable for people. Now, if I were to tell you that I could share with you the key to the Christian life, you probably would expect something that you've never heard before. Probably would expect something kind of esoteric or sort of out there, you know, in the clouds. And we could pull it down. And, oh, that's it. I've been doing all this. That's the key. The one key to the Christian life. And what I'm trying to communicate to you this morning is that this is it. This is the key. The key to the Christian life. A Christian life that is worthwhile, the key to that is found right here. And this is what it is. It's this simple. You want to live a worthwhile Christian life? You feel like your Christian life today is just sort of flopping along? It's here. A gospel-generated devotion to good works. That is a profitable, fruitful, useful, worthwhile Christian life. And I think this involves two major things. 
By the way, it's always the obvious things that we miss. Familiarity breeds contempt, the old saying, and that is true. The more and more that we see the obvious, the less we actually see the obvious. And I think this idea of a gospel-generated devotion to good works, which is what we find in verse 8, which ends up being excellent and profitable for people involves two major things. Here's the first thing. So we're, you're thinking, okay, how do, I, how do I move out from this and begin to cultivate a worthwhile Christian life, one that is excellent and profitable, one that is gospel, a gospel-generated devotion to good works? First, it involves believing the gospel and preaching it to yourself daily. This is an idea that, that uh, I, Paul Tripp in particular talks about quite a bit. Preaching the gospel to ourselves daily. What exactly does that mean? I mean, we wake up in the morning and on a good day, we spend a little bit of time reading the Bible. We do, we're going through a, a Bible, to read through the Bible plan, or maybe we're reading through a book repetitiously, or maybe we're memorizing a bit of scripture, or whatever the case might be. We wake up in the morning, and we jump into our devotion, and then we go into the rest of of our day. But what does it mean as we enter into the day, as we enter into the, that time with the Lord, that private time to connect with the Lord, what does it mean to preach the gospel to yourself? Then and throughout the day. I think it involves three things. First, we preach to ourselves mercy. Mercy. We are constantly reminded of the fact that we don't measure up. And that actually has to constantly be put into our minds. Because the more and more we think we measure up, the more and more we will rely on our own strength. We rely on our own efforts. We rely on our own resolve, our own diligence, our own discipline. And then when that works out, we're prideful. When that doesn't work out, we're beat down and frustrated. That is why every day we must be reminded of the mercy of God in Christ. That everything that we have from God is because he has given it to us freely without us earning a drop of it. He just showed up in your life. He just showed up in my life by grace. You didn't go looking for God and then he said, uh, okay, you've looked enough. I'll come to you now. It didn't happen that way. It didn't happen that way for me. And if everyone on this planet who calls Jesus Lord is honest, it did not happen for them that way either. It begins with mercy. And that's verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, and so on and so forth. But God, the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. If you don't remind yourself of this every day, you will forget it. If I don't remind myself of this every day, I will forget it. We forget this so quickly. So quickly. It's not about mercy. It's about discipline and dedication. It is about mercy. And mercy is appropriated and is expressed. We express back to God gratitude for mercy through prayer. Prayer is the fundamental way by which we say to God, I believe in mercy. Because here's the thing. People who don't believe in mercy just get up in the morning, put their pants on, uh, tie their shoes, and just head on out. There's no need for prayer. I can handle this. The praying person is a person who knows, I can't handle this. 
I need you, God. I needed you at the beginning. And I need you every day of my life until the end. This message must constantly be preached to ourselves. Or we will waste our lives. Mercy. Secondly, we have to preach the power of God in our lives that we encountered last week. What did God do by the Holy Spirit through the cross work of Christ? He regenerated us and he renewed us, which means that we're not just sort of camping out in this sort of, oh, woe is me, I'm just, a, I'm just a sinner. We're not camping out there. We're saying, God, I need your mercy, but by your grace, you have filled me with your spirit and empowered me for great things in your name. That's what all of us should be saying to ourselves every day, that we have the power of God in us. An immeasurable power, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead exists in every believer. So we must preach mercy, but we must also preach the presence of the power of God to help us live the life he has commanded us to. Or else, why in the world is he giving us all of these instructions and commands if we are not to live them? We live them by being filled with the Holy Spirit and his power. And thirdly, this connects to both of those, when we preach the gospel to ourselves, we must preach our standing in Christ. We must preach to ourselves the fact that this very day, this very moment, I am ready to die because I am righteous before God in Christ. This day, this moment, every moment, whether things are going well or things are not, whether there's great encouragement or there's great frustration in this moment, I must know my righteousness is found in Christ, not myself, and therefore, I stand before God clean, pure, accepted, loved. All of that. Now, if we do not preach God's mercy, God's power, and our standing in Christ to ourselves every day, we will not live a worthwhile, productive, fruitful, profitable Christian life. If we do, we will. We will. But that's only the first part of it. That's the most significant part of it. We believe and preach the gospel to ourselves daily. But secondly, we are devoted to doing good to others in every way that we possibly can. In every conceivable way. Now I want to say this about, we all know that good works are good, right? I mean, we all know that. That's, that goes without saying. We all know that we should be helping people. We all know that we should be doing things for people and meeting needs and so on and so forth. Of course, it's one of the reasons that so many charities and even institutions and hospitals and educational institutions have been founded throughout the last two millennia by Christians. Because Christians have always had this mindset. We must be doing good. We must be charitable. We must be doing right to other people. But I want to say this. Oftentimes, when it comes to good works, and I was very much convicted this week as I came across this, because I think when it comes to good works, we tend to think occasionally so we're going through the day, we're living our lives, and a need arises, and we turn to that need, and we think, oh, can I address that need? Maybe, maybe not. Um, no, I don't have time for that. And we go on. Sometimes, on occasion, we actually address that need, or we help that person, or we do good to someone. That's not what I'm talking about. It's not what Paul's talking about. That's not what the Holy Spirit, who inspired this text here is talking about. Rather, we are talking about a vision for your life. 
a vision for your life that is called devotion to good works. What if you woke up every day and that was, that was the center of your life? I'm going to do good works today. I'm going to do things that help other people today. I'm going to benefit others. I'm going to work for the advantage of other people. Gospel-generated devotion to good works. That is what we are told here is excellent and profitable for people. That is a worthwhile life. I want to point out one other implication that I think we get from this passage. Notice that Paul tells Titus to insist or to confidently assert these things. These things are not going to come about in the people of God who live throughout Crete unless Titus leads the way in insisting on these things and confidently asserting these things. And in fact, Paul tells Titus earlier on in chapter 2 to be a model of good works. So he's preaching these things with his mouth and he's preaching these things with his life. And here's a point that I want to make for all of us. The insisting is vital and it comes through community and sitting under the teaching of the word. So we're talking about a worthwhile life. A worthwhile life is a, a gospel life. It is a gospel life that generates good works, that produces good works or, or produces a devotion to good works. And the point I'm making here is that we will not have that kind of life unless we exist in community. With the people of God. There are all sorts of reasons why we say people should come to church. People should gather together with the body. This, I think, is one of the most important. It is through the constant insisting upon these things that happens through preaching. The constant insistence upon these things that happens through Bible study. And through being sharpened by our brothers and sisters. It's through that constant insistence that we are turned back to this worthwhile kind of life. Constantly turned back, turned back. And by the way, we need that. We need that because our flesh is always wanting to go in the next category. And that's where we move now to the second picture, the wasted. First picture, the worthwhile. The remedy for a frustrated Christian life. And then the second, the wasted. Look at verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Verse 8 ended with things that are excellent and profitable. And by contrast, verse 9 ends with the unprofitable and the worthless. We have one picture, worthwhile. We have a second picture, wasted. A life that is worthwhile and a life that is wasted. So let's look at these words. Unprofitable. Something that is unprofitable is that which is not useful, beneficial, or advantageous for other people. And here's a question I think we could all ask ourselves. We know that we must cultivate all kinds of things as, as, as people. We have hobbies. We have things we love. We have things we like to do for fun, things we like to do to relax. All of those things are part of humanness, part of what it means to image God as a human, as a human being. But what if we began to think about every facet of our lives, even our hobbies, 
and our relaxation as a means by which we could benefit others, be useful to others, be advantageous for others. But that's the worthwhile life. The wasted life has no concern for this. So it's unprofitable and it's worthless. This is the same word used of idols. Idols, of course, are made out of stone, made out of wood. They are nothing. Have no power. They do not hear or smell or speak. The prophets oftentimes satirize this idea of, of the fact that the, the idols that the nations worship and that the Israelites worship are dumb. They do nothing. They don't hear prayers. They don't speak back. And this is the same with this kind of life or these kinds of focuses. It is like idols. It is like human wisdom apart from God. It is like the old way of life before we came to Christ. 1 Peter 1.18 The way of life inherited from your forefathers is worthless or futile, he says. Paul, interestingly, also uses this word in 1 Corinthians 15 for our faith if the resurrection is not true. So Paul will come along and say, this is great candor, great honesty here. Paul will come along in 1 Corinthians Corinthians 15 and he will say, let me tell you something. If the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, then you are a fool for being a Christian. If the resurrection of Jesus did not happen, our faith is worthless. The same word that we find here. A wasted life is an unprofitable life. It is a worthless life. A startling quote here from John MacArthur from his commentary on Titus I want to read. One wonders, consider this, one wonders how many hours and years and lifetimes of Christians have been lost lost to genuine teaching of God's word and to effective evangelism and discipling because of time wasted with foolish controversies as we see in this passage. These unproductive substitutes can be summed up as arguments, speculations, and rules that are built on human wisdom. By contrast, what Paul says that that Titus and the Christians in Crete are to focus on, that which is excellent and profitable, has to do with God's wisdom, God's gospel, and the wise life that flows out of that gospel. Here we see that these unproductive substitutes are all built on human wisdom, not on God's Not on God's revelation in Jesus. We talked about this nutshell idea that everything that we find in verses 4 to 7 are like a nutshell of Paul's gospel. And that goes back to the idea that all truth emanates, all truth and all wisdom emanate from God's revelation of himself in Jesus Christ. All of scripture points to this. All of scripture points to the Christ who died for our sins and who rose again. This gospel... The Christ who gave us his Holy Spirit. These things we see in verse 9 have nothing to do with God's revelation in Jesus. They deal with other things. And there are four items here. I want to go through each of these. The first one is foolish controversies. Foolish controversies. These are disputes, debates that lead to nothing. So I want to ask you, how much of your time, thoughts, and energy do you give to debating controversial topics that do not contribute to the building up 
of the people of God in grace and godliness or to building up anybody for that matter. How much time do we give to these controversies? And this can even happen on important topics. I can remember I've had a number of really close Roman Catholic friends throughout the last decade or so. Two of them are, one's a monk and one's a priest. And I've been to Europe with, with one of them. And these are, these are close friends. And I can remember early on in my 20s being very foolish, sometimes two, three, four hours. I'd be talking to them on the phone, debating whatever. Baptism or justification by faith alone or whatever else. These are good things. I mean, justification by faith alone is central. And baptism and the way I understand baptism and what it means and when it should be done and by what and all of this and other questions. But I can remember walking away from those debates many times, many times, some of them two, three, four hours, and knowing that there was nothing fruitful or good or profitable or right about any of it. It was all about me. It was all about my prideful, sinful heart. It was all about me. And how often are those things not about God at all? Not about his glory. Not about the building up of people. Not about how they can be benefited or helped. But all about winning an argument. All about getting a point across. All about asserting oneself. That's how we do when we get wrapped up in controversies. Genealogies. It is unclear what sorts of genealogies are in view, but probably this is associated with the Jewish myths mentioned in chapter 1 verse 14. One commentator says that these genealogies have to do with speculation about the origins and descendants of persons which are erroneously thought to have religious significance. I mean, how often do we find, we find this even today, you know, Bible code stuff and all this other silly stuff it has to do with like finding things between things and sort of finding the hidden, finding the fanciful in the midst of what is present. 1 Timothy 1.4 says that these genealogies promote speculations, speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. That's what we're about. We're about the purposes of God in the world that, have, that has to do with faith. We want people to trust in this God. We want people to trust in this Jesus to bank everything on this trustworthy saying. Not get lost in silly speculations about who knows what. And we often do that. When we become preoccupied with hidden or fanciful things rather than what has been clearly revealed in Scripture. What about you? How often do you sit around and sort of, you know, we, we, we talk about this, especially in seminary. It was kind of like this. You know, everybody would just sit around and have these really sort of theologically nerdy discussions where we'd just sit around in a little circle and talk about all kinds of little things. But sometimes that, that's all about pride. It really has nothing to do with this, what we're talking about here. It, it has everything to do with ourselves and our passions. And that leads to the third idea that we have in verse 9. Dissensions. Strife or quarreling that is associated with our fleshly desires. Galatians 5.20, just before we get the fruit of the Spirit, we have the works of the flesh. So we get to compare those two. It's a great passage. The works of the flesh. And this is one of the words listed in the works of the flesh. Where there is strife, where there is dissension, where there is quarreling, there is our ugly flesh. There it is, right there, behind it. 
grouped with jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. All of these words appear alongside of this word in the New Testament. That's sort of a, a web of stuff going on in our hearts and in our lives. 1 Timothy 6.4 says that these dissensions are produced, and listen to this, by an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. We love to argue about words. Well, words matter a lot. But that does not mean that we lose ourselves in controversies and quarrels over them. So I want to ask this. If we could peel back the layers of your heart, of each of our hearts, how often are we at odds with other believers because of our cravings? Because of our fleshy, passionate, sinful cravings. It's not about truth. It's not about God's word. It's not about the gospel. It's not about people being built up, lifted up in God that they might see the glory of Jesus. It's about my cravings, my flesh, my passion to be right and to assert myself. So often we see that and unfortunately so often that can be found in churches. And finally, the fourth item on the list is quarrels about the law. 1 Timothy 1.7 mentions those who have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. These are fights about the commands of people. Jesus faced this when he was dealing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were arguing about, should we obey the commands of this guy or should we obey the commands of this guy? Jesus says, you set aside the commands of God to obey the commands of people. You are focused on rules and on morals and all of this we know is meant to give us a basis for self-congratulation. A basis for self-righteousness. So the major thing to see here is that there is a haphazard and wasteful way of going about the Christian life. And here is a main idea that you can't miss. On the most basic level, I want you to see that wasting your life can happen. That's a little parenthesis. That it can happen. But wasting your life involves abandoning everything we just discussed in verse 8. Here's what I mean. When, gospels gener when gospel generated good works are not the heartbeat of your life, when that's not your core, something else will fill the void. Something else will take that spot. And that happens for us Christians all the time. We have all sorts of things that we focus on. All sorts of things that we live for. But when gospel generated good works move out of the center. And remember, that involves two things. Preaching the gospel to ourselves every single day and being devoted to good works. Not just doing them. Being devoted to good works. When that moves from the center, when that moves from the front, guess what? Something else moves right in that place. And that becomes the basis for a frustrated Christian life. And so I just ask us this morning, if that's you, as we started, if I said to you at the beginning... You just feel like your Christian life is in tatters. It's just frustrated. You know, you're just kind of, it's just kind of roller coaster, but there's a lot more of this than this. My plea would be to focus here on what we find in verse 8. And all of this leads us to finally consider the warped. Look at verses 10 and 11. 
As we finish up this morning, verses 10 and 11. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Here's what I want you to see. Where a verse 9 kind of life or focus persists, there will be a verse 10 kind of person. That's where it begins. You take your eyes off of gospel-generated good works. You replace that with something else. Those things we just mentioned and all of the implications that come out of them. And that then leads to what we find in verse 10. A divisive person. How many churches have been ripped apart by divisive people? How many churches have been ripped apart by divisive people? And leaders who would not deal with divisive people. You guys have been to various churches. I've been to various churches throughout my life. This is rampant in our churches. This is rampant. And so we read a passage like this. And I think it should convict all of us. But it should definitely spur us on to consider what the Bible says about doing church. What the Bible says about doing church is quite different from what contemporary evangelical sentiments are about doing church church. Those things, in fact, are radically at odds. I remember in seminary talking to people and people saying that church discipline was a weird idea. And I thought to myself, it's everywhere throughout the scriptures. How can that be a weird idea? It's right there. And we find it here in this passage. Such a person is to be warned once and then again, lovingly, urge to come back, not to persist, and then the church is to have nothing more to do with him. A passage that sheds light on this is Matthew 18, warned by individuals, then taken to the church, and then Jesus himself says this, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Because such a person's persistence in sin, despite multiple warnings, shows him to be warped and sinful. That's the reason why. His persistence in sin shows him to be self-condemned, warped, and sinful. His actions themselves make this verdict clear. Such a person is literally perverted. I know that sounds strange. We use that word in a different Context, But that is the translation, really, for the word that we find here. Warped. Warped means perverted. That is, he is turned aside or going the wrong way. This is the same thing we find in 114 with the mention of those who turn away from the truth. The church must self-police against this kind of person who desires to rip the body apart. This warped life not only fails to be productive, useful, profitable, but this person himself becomes a diversion from those very things. This is very important. Notice this. Time and energy spent warning and disciplining such a person is time and energy that is robbed away from the work of the Lord. So often we see in churches folks who persist in being divisive and they have this mindset, well, the church is going to have to put up with me. You know, because I, you know, I just, the church is just going to have to keep bearing with me on this. That's not what we find here. The church has other work to do. The church has gospel work to do. Important gospel work to do. Not to 
constantly be chasing down divisive brothers and sisters. And that's why it's clear from Paul here. Warn once, warn twice, and then avoid. So three pictures this morning. Worthwhile, wasted, or warped. And the prayer for us today is that each of us will pursue the first in our lives and that we as a church will pursue to be excellent and profitable to our brothers and sisters in Christ, wherever they may be found, and to those in our community and beyond. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you for its teaching and how sometimes it tells us things that we already know but maybe don't really see because it's just been lost in all of the church jargon and cliches of a lifetime of being around these things. Father, would we, would we be freshly directed this morning to this kind of life, a life of preaching the gospel to ourselves, a life that is devoted to doing good for other people. Every moment of every day, every relationship, every endeavor devoted to being beneficial, useful, advantageous, that we will not waste our Christian lives, Father. We pray for our church that you will protect it from division. Help us as leaders to be loving and gentle uh, with those who would go down this path and, and not to be hard or harsh or domineering. But God, help us to be courageous as leaders and to say when this begins to happen or if this begins to happen, brother, sister, come back. Don't do this. Help us, Father, to be a courageous church, but a biblical church, a church that is, that is based on what your word says it ought to be and not in our own fanciful ideas. Father, help us not become distracted in our Christian lives with, with debates and other things that could, could veer us away from that focus which we ought to have, and that is the building up of people based on the gospel. God, help us, we pray. We are a needy people. We need your mercy every single day. We will need your mercy until we breathe our last breath. And God, would you just be with us and help us individually. I pray for those especially who feel today like the Christian life for them has just been an utter failure. Those who are here today who feel even now, and I think we all feel that to some degree, Father, but those who especially today are here and they just feel like they're just flopping along with no direction, would they be freshly invigorated today, Father, to pursue you in this way, to, to take hold of this key to the Christian life, the simplicity of it all, and to move forward with that, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.